I was talking to, thank you, Jim. I was talking to somebody this week about how the Lord meets us when we give. Um, it's awkward for a pastor to talk about giving, uh, if you didn't know. <laughs> uh, it's awkward. My heart for you is that you would experience it more and more for you because you cannot outgive God. When you give to the Lord, you're, when you give to others, you're simply loaning to the Lord, and He will repay. And He knows how to repay as well. It's not a health and wealth kind of promise, and yet it is the goodness of God kind of promise uh, that you cannot outgive Him. Uh, and so thank you, Jim, for that reminder. Uh, it, when you, whenever you do give to Mercy Hill, by the way, we do have baskets in the back. We haven't passed the baskets since COVID began. And praise God, we haven't needed to either uh, due to the generosity of the church. But you can drop benevolence checks in the back as well. So we'll open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. And welcome to what I might call our unexpected series in spiritual warfare. Uh, you think, unexpected? Well, it was, it was expected by me, at least, that it would be one message long. Last week, we took a break from our series in Matthew and we turned to 1 Peter, and we talked about spiritual warfare and the enemy that we all face in the devil. And I kind of thought, well, after that, we would get back to our regularly scheduled programming in Matthew. Well, here we are. We are back in Matthew, and I find that we are still talking about spiritual warfare in Matthew 23. Last week, we talked about the Christian's enemy, the devil, and this week, I believe, we're talking about a greater enemy. A greater enemy. I think the enemy described in here is the great enemy faced by believers, the great enemy faced by this pastor, the great enemy faced by this church, the great enemy faced in your care group, in your friendships, in your marriages. I wish in no way to minimize what we talked about last week. Uh, the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And his person is real and his power is substantial and his hatred is great. And so as we talked about last, last week, let us be sober-minded and watchful. But I do believe that the enemy we will discuss today is greater still. Because the power that the enemy has, the devil has against us, is an external threat to the believer. He is an external threat to, to the believer, threatening us, as it were, from the outside. But what we consider today is an evil that threatens not from without, but from within, that we carry around within us a malignancy that rises up in our own spirit, in our own selves, and it is named pride. It is named pride. Pride is a powerful enemy. It encourages us to wear a mask with each other. It encourages us to not see ourselves rightly before God. It encourages us not to see God rightly when we stand before Him. Listen to the words from a wise pastor and author, John Stott. And this is how he describes the work of pride, he says this, quote, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy. I want you to catch 
what he said there because it's an, it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. First, he says, at every stage of our Christian development. So that is, from the newest convert to the oldest, most mature saint. At every stage in our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship. So that is over here and over there. In every area of our lives, at any given time, pride is our greatest enemy. It's pride which resists the work of the Holy Spirit in revealing sin to us. It's pride which, when we can see our own sin, resists going to the Lord in humble contrition. It's pride which would hide that sin from each other, that we might pray for each other and strengthen each other and forgive each other. It's pride which, when we're listening to a sermon, helps us be really good at applying it to someone else and not as good about seeing where and how to apply it to ourselves. So we're going to take the next two weeks on Matthew 23 in order to kind of cover what all is is in here, uh, but I wanted to start this morning by reading it together. So follow along with me as we read the entirety of Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. 
And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Fathers, we sit under the hearing of your word we ask together that you would enable it to permeate our hearts. And Lord, that you would enable us to see rightly what's in your word and to see rightly the pride in the Pharisees. Lord, we also ask that you would open our eyes to see where pride is at work within us. We see already that you are opposed to it. Be not opposed to us, we pray. But be at work here. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 23 warns against pride, and this morning we're going to look at the three warnings that are in here. And the first is the judgment of Christ. The judgment of Christ. We have before us a passage of judgment. I tell you, it is a judicial pronouncement. The judge, Jesus, is announcing judgment on these people, on the Pharisees here. Of course, Christ, right, he's 
at this point, he hasn't died yet. He's going to soon die and then be resurrected and then ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father. And he will be the judge of all the earth. And here is the judge of all the earth before he's, so to speak, taken the bench. And he is declaring justice and judgment in advance over these people, as it said over and over, woe to you. This is, this is sort of the, the sentence being issued. Guilty, woe to you. And he says it in verse 13, and then 15, and then 16, and 25, and 23, 27, and 29, seven different times, woe to you. Seven times, probably, showing the measure of completion, the perfection of judgment that's going to be poured out upon these leaders. So, so what is happening here? Let's make sure we understand historically what's going on, right? This is, Jesus is about to be uh, crucified. We're just a few chapters away from that. The people he's talking to are the ones who are going to do it. And so he is, he is talking about the end of the old covenant and all of its systems and all of its leadership and the beginning of the new covenant with himself as the new leader of God's people. And he is pronouncing these declarations of woe upon the old system and upon the old leaders of that system. We talked a few weeks ago, if you were here, of the fall of Jerusalem at the hand of the Romans. And this is what Jesus is predicting and pronouncing right here. That Jerusalem is left desolate. So one of the reasons this is in our Bible is so that we can understand that the significance of Jesus is coming that it was the end of this old covenant, that it's the beginning of the new covenant. But there's something else going on here too, because, because the passage reveals, in addition to the, all this major stuff in history, God's disposition towards the pride of these rulers. And the purpose he reveals this is not just for those rulers, but for us readers that we could see God's disposition towards pride and consider that as well. So, What is pride? We talk about pride. What is it? Our culture seems to exalt it as though it were good. Scripture does not. Pride is seeking to exalt ourselves. Seeking to exalt ourselves most often in the sight of others, right? Make ourselves look good in the sight of others. It's, it's seeking a glory which we want, but which is not due to us. So verse, we, we can look at a few places in here. Verse five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Pharisees were unconcerned about the reality of their righteousness, but they were very concerned about the perception of their righteousness. Verse 6, they love the place of honor, feasts, and the best seats in the synagogue, and the greeting in the marketplace, and being called rabbi, seeking after glory. Verse 28, so also 
you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pride is focused on the outside, focused on the glory that can be given, the esteem that can be given, looking good in the sight of others. And it is distracted entirely from a focus on the reality within, the reality before God. Pride is a seeking of glory for ourselves. And Christ reveals that he is opposed to it. He is opposed to it. This He is pronouncing eternal judgment against the Pharisees in their pride. And unrepentant pride results in eternal judgment for all who remain unrepentant in their pride. This is God's perspective on pride. This is, this is His opposition to pride being revealed. These are perhaps the, the hardest words we ever read of Christ speaking as He declares over and over, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. This is the merciful Savior declaring this to those who refuse to repent of their pride. See, pride is a sin beneath other sins. So pride was the first sin ever, right? This is what made Lucifer fall. This is what made the devil and and some of the angels fall as they in pride wanted glory which was not due to them. And God, who will not share His glory with another, opposed to all manifestations of pride. The devil and the demons were cast out. And then the enemy brought that sin into the garden and tempted people with that very sin. And he said to this, you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. You will be like God if you eat of this. Hey, listen, Transcend your limitations. Transcend your humanness that God has shackled you with. You deserve more than this. Be like God. And of course, they took the fruit. Pride is at the root of human rebellion back in the day, and it's at the root of our rebellion as well. Because it's pride that would say, my way, not God's way. It's pride that says, I know what I'm doing. I need no instruction from him. Pride insists on its own way, does not submit to God's law, would exalt itself against its creator and even over its creator to the point of denying that it has a creator. This is the powerful voice of pride. It is at the root of rebellion. And it is at the root of unrepentance. Pride lays at the root of unrepentance because here's what it does. Not only does it rebel against God, but it sees no problem with that. No problem. It is perfectly self-assured that rebellion was the right answer. Friends, it is pride that keeps those who hear the gospel and don't turn to Jesus. It's pride that stops the turning to Jesus. 
It's the voice that says, I don't have sin. I need no repentance. I need no forgiveness. I need no Savior. Testimony of Scripture is that for all who declare that they need no Savior, have no Savior. Pride is a dangerous enemy. It's at the root of unrepentance. And on the other hand, is not humility the path to salvation? Isn't isn't humility the road that gets traveled of, of humbling ourselves before God, of crying out, God, I am a sinner. God, your way is right and my way is wrong. God, there's there's nothing I can do to get to you, but you sent Jesus on my behalf. He did what I could never do. He died the death I couldn't die. He lived the life I couldn't live. I can't. You did. Please help. (laughs) Right? This This is the response to the gospel, and it is bathed in humility. Humility is is the path that that gives a kind of faith to look outside of ourselves to another to save us. It's a faith that's willing to admit and repent of our sins and cry out for forgiveness to God. Salvation's road is named humility, and damnation's is named pride. Friend, perhaps there's someone here this morning who's never turned to the Lord. You've never humbled yourself before God. And I wonder this morning, if you feel the tug of pride in your heart, I want you to look. Do you feel that tug of pride? Nothing wrong with me. My sin's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. What's God done for me anyway? And pride is hard to see, but hard at work. I want to encourage you to fight it. It is not your friend. It may speak in your voice and your mind. It is not your friend. It would turn you from the living God and keep you on the path away from him. So if you see pride this morning, let me encourage you to take that before God and confess it. Please forgive me. You are God. I'm not. Please forgive me. Friend, if you are here, don't know the Lord, and you don't see pride in your life, you don't, you don't feel that pull. You see no need for salvation, but you don't feel the pull of pride. Let me challenge you with a prayer to ask God to reveal pride in you. It is there, and it is hard at work. I want to challenge you to to ask the Lord, okay, show me. Show me my pride. This is a prayer I believe he will answer so that he could bring you to himself. Church, this enemy keeps the world on the path to hell. This enemy... By the grace of God, God overcame, again, by his grace at work within us when we came to Christ, when we could repent and turn from our sins. 
But does this enemy stop working as soon as we turn to Christ? Anybody that's walked with Christ for two or three minutes knows that no, that enemy does not stop working and in fact is still at work in the hearts of believers as well and would still keep us from following after God and growing closer to God and becoming more Christ-like. Remember the quote by John Stott that we began with, at every stage of the Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy. And so from the first warning, really directed towards those who have never humbled themselves before the Lord, we come to our second warning, which is directed towards the church. Directed towards the church. We can read it in verse 12, where it says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever seeks to make himself great will be humbled. Whoever makes himself low will be exalted. Now, I want, I want you to consider for a minute how these verbs work in this verse. How do the verbs work? You've got the first one, whoever exalts himself. The work being done there is being done by the person, right? They are self-exalting. They are doing it themselves. But then it says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That is, something will be done externally to them. Who is it, friend? Who is it that's doing the action of the second part of that phrase? Who is it that does the humbling, that brings people low, that opposes pride, is none other than God himself opposing the pride of man. It is God in his glory that opposes man in his pride. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled by God. The passage, verse 12, only gives us two options. Exalt yourself and be humbled by God. Or, or, humble yourself and be exalted by God. These are the only two options that it gives to us. It's a massive warning and a massive promise. This warning, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, reminds me of another warning very similar repeated several times in the scripture, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here is the warning for the church. God resists the proud. God resists the Christian who walks in pride. God resists the believer who insists on exalting themselves. Let me ask you, where do you need God's work in your life? Where would you desire God to be at work? Would it be, as we prayed before, a trial that you're called to endure? Suffering that you have to walk through? Some area of sin that you're seeking to put to death or some area of godliness that you're struggling to grow in? Some relationship that you're working on, you pray that God would be at work or some area where you need his provision. Friends, where do you need God's grace in your life? Friends, where do you not need God's grace at work in your life? Here's what we don't need from God. His 
opposition. Like a hole in the head. We do not need the opposition of God, the resistance of God, the pushback of God, the I will humble you. Of God. If God resists you, what hope do you have? Who do you think is going to win this? Will you contend with the Almighty? We who need grace from Him everywhere. He opposing us? If He is just neutral to us, we're toast. We depend on His grace. We need His grace. His neutrality is not what we need. We need grace, strength from God. And yet, God says that He will humble the one who exalts Himself. He resists the one who exalts himself. Pride brings the resistance of God. But here's the warning to the saints. Pride will stall you in your tracks. And I might even encourage you to consider your life. Is there, is there areas in your life where, wow, I, I'm not growing here. I haven't grown here for years. I wish this sin could be put to death. I wish this area would grow. Let me, let me ask you, are you aware of pursuing humility or not? Because God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. And that's the second part of this. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. Let's go back again to that quote by John Stott because said it now a couple times. Hopefully you're getting, getting familiar with it, but I haven't told you the end of it yet. So here's what it says. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Humility is our greatest friend because God gives grace to the humble. And we're a people who need God's grace. We need His strength. We need His help. We need His love and joy and peace and patience to be at work within us. How, how do those things come to be at work within us? What means do we have of inducing God to give grace to our lives? If grace is a, a kind of... What picture do I use? Bathtub in heaven? Full of grace? What's the pipe that gets it down to me so that it flows down here? Pipe is humility. God gives grace to the humble. It's a promise, friend. It's one of the simplest promises in Scripture. Do you want to see God's grace at work? Find a step of humility you can take. Find a step. Take a step of humility. Because here's the thing. God can't help himself but give grace to the humble. That's what this means. It's a promise from God that he gives grace every time. You don't have to know, well, how is he going to give me grace? Or in what manner is he going to work? Or anything like that. Just find a step of humility and trust that God gives grace to the humble. Because whoever humbles himself will be exalted by God. 
Okay, so this brings us then to our third and final warning about pride. I'm going to state the warning and then show you it in the passage in front of us. Here's the warning. Pride brings blindness. Pride brings blindness. Let me, let me show you verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, verse 17. You blind fools, verse 19. You blind men, verse 24. You blind guides, guides verse 26. You blind Pharisee. Over and over, Jesus declares that in their pride, they have become blind. The danger of pride... Here's what we, okay, in our pride, we seek to fool others, right? See how great I am? We're trying to fool others. In our pride, we end up fooling ourselves. And we become blind to the reality of who we are, to the reality of who God is. And most dangerously, and I, I think this is 100% of the time, we become blind to our own pride. This brings us back to why I said I think this is the great enemy that we face. We've talked a lot about the damage that it can do, but here's, here's where it is most dangerous is that it is almost impossible to see. Because if it's there, it's blinding you. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord. If it's there, it's blinding you that it's there. See, we all know, we all know people who are proud. <laughs> Right? Other people. I mean, other, we all know other people who are proud, right? And we all know how distasteful that is. Nobody likes a proud person, right? And so, if we in fact are proud, we're going to hide our pride from ourselves. Because the last thing a proud person wants to be perceived as is proud. And the last thing we'd want to see ourselves as is proud as well. Pride works very, very hard to conceal itself from the ones who are its victims. I wonder if you're tempted to think, as we're talking right now, that pride is perhaps not a big deal in your life. I want to just encourage you to, before God, assume otherwise. Just assume otherwise. Assume that this enemy has ground staked out and that you just haven't seen it yet. Assume that. Because pride works to blind us. So next week, what we're going to do, we're going to go through this passage again. So much in here that we can't get at once. And, and we're going to look through a little bit more carefully to the different ways that pride is at work in the Pharisees. Kind of skipped past that this morning. So we're going to get to see different ways that pride is at work, different manifestations of pride. And I trust by the grace of God, we'll be able to come in and see the pride at work in the Pharisees. But that's not what I want for us next Sunday. What I want is that we could walk in and see pride at work in ourselves. Church, we need this. We need God to point at us. We need to let the word study us. And so, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to stop here. 
And I just want to encourage us to take this week to pray that the Lord would prepare us for next Sunday, that he would prepare us for his word, that he would prepare us to, to see what we are utterly incapable of seeing apart from his grace because pride blinds us. How do, you, how do you help someone who's blind to see? Well, we go to the Lord together is what we do. I want to encourage you this week to be prayerful that the Lord would use his word. If you're having a care group this week, I would encourage you to talk this through, pray for each other in this area. If you're not having care group, read this, read this passage again and be reminded to pray this week that the Lord would be revealing pride in you. It is not easy and it is not comfortable, but it is so good. Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The desire that you be positioned for the grace of God to flow to you uninterrupted. So this morning, we're going to actually close our meeting with a kind of act of humility that we can walk through together. We're going to take communion together. And before we all get moving with that, I just want to make the connection. Communion is a physical act that says, I don't have what I need. I need from God what I don't have. I am a sinner, and I need forgiveness. I am a human that needs sustenance from God. I do need grace from God. So, friends, I'm excited that this morning is a communion morning because I think it gives us the opportunity to immediately take a step of humility together. And uh, church, let's stand together.